0: Put on my like if you're feeling bad about yourself, just put on my hero and look in the mirror and that like, low face on <laughs> yeah. your face. Like, you'll be fine.
1: He's talking about you.
0: Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I am
1: a hero. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm my own hero. I'm going to
1: finish the last 10 minutes of this treadmill.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And welcome to Minor Notes, the podcast where we share our thoughts about an album from top to bottom.
2: No skips, and we give some minor notes. Yes, that is Kate Griffin. And that's Gabby Alvarez. Welcome. If you're new here, Gabby is a music business professional, and I am a songwriter, and this entire second season of Minor Notes is dedicated to the discography of Foo Fighters
0: yes that is right and today we're going to be discussing the band's second album the color and the shape and we're joined by a guest on this episode freelance music writer and creator and host of the blog and podcast the tape deck rob mora
1: yay Yay. welcome Welcome. (laughs) thank you and former human teenager as well
0: (laughs) nice (laughs) always good yeah yeah always good um we're glad to hear that um So Kate had found an article that you recently wrote for Pop Matters called The Color and the Shape, found Foo Fighters peaking in their adolescence. And it just so happened to be, we're researching to do this season with Foo Fighters around that time. So the timing was kind of perfect. And then found out you're in Seattle like me.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to be. We gotta meet up at some point.
0: We have to, we totally will. Yeah. Um, So first question for you, Rob. Are you a Foo fan? Do you consider yourself a Foo fan? I consider
1: myself a Fairweather Foo fan. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I really enjoy their best material and I don't think I've listened to a Foo Fighters record since Wasting Light, I think. Like, wow. I think I, yeah, I think I listened to Sound City or, oh shoot, what was the one? It was the one, uh, the hi- Sonic Highways, that's right, the mm-hmm. one that they were doing at Sound City. I think I yes. checked out a little bit of that, um, but I did have not listened to Medicine at Midnight, I have not listened to Concrete and Gold, so those two are sort of out of my category. Everything else, though, love the self-titled, love this one that we're about to talk about. Nothing Left to Lose is fantastic. These are all in like my my liked albums on Spotify.
0: Awesome. You know? So this is good timing, then. This is, yeah, this exactly. is a good spot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's your favorite Foo album?
1: I would say, honestly, it's this one, and then the self-titled, and then... There's nothing left to lose. I think those are my top three, and this one is definitely my favorite.
0: Wow, yeah, I think that's pretty typical. Like I, I was telling my boyfriend Nick that we were doing this one today, and he was like, "That's the best one." <laughs> yep, you're like, "Thanks, sir." Thanks, bro. <laughs> yeah. Love that rate review.
1: <laughs> have either of you read the Dave Grohl biography?
0: We both have. Yeah. Well, Kate has. I'm still in the middle of She's it. She's in the process. Yeah, swamped with work in life, but I am reading it, and I'm surprised at how good of a writer he is. I was not expecting that.
1: It's amazing. The the thing that surprised me is how is where it shows up everywhere. I was going to go out to fly to see my family in Massachusetts, and it's in the airport everywhere. Oh, yeah. Like, I've walked into multiple bookstores, and it's just there front and center, you know?
0: I mean, people do love Grohl. He has, like, a really far reach and i'm not a big foo fan i there's singles that i have heard i've not really listened to entire albums before but i'm a fan of dave Grohl, and i think that's a thing for a lot of people
1: it's hard not to be a fan of dave Grohl. i think he just comes across as somebody who's so affable and genial and like just so well loved he knows how to carry himself
0: yes for sure
2: just seems like the best dude
1: Mm -hmm. and i think the best uh example of that is the recent episode of hot ones he did it must have been what, like a month and a month and a half ago and yeah. then you watch that and you are completely like it's so easy to just be smitten with how charismatic he is
2: yeah and and i feel like he's been in so many uh, situations like even with fans just documenting like oh i met him i met him and you've never seen him like like turn someone away like he's never had a bad moment even when he's not on -hmm. do you know what i mean like it's just like wow this dude is like genuinely awesome
1: when you're talking about public figures as big as dave Grohl, and dave Grohl is currently the third richest drummer in the world when you're talking about somebody as public as that you have to sort of assume that there's some sort of persona that they're putting on where they sort of know that that they're being watched by everybody at every moment if they screw up and so you know that goes into if you're speculating about how Dave Grohl is in public, but besides that, I think he really just honestly is a level headed person, like somebody who who carries himself really well just because he's just that kind of person, not because yes. he's putting on airs. No,
0: know? for sure. He definitely comes across that way. And I think like even as I have not finished with the book, but as much as I've as I've read of of the book, and Kate and I talked about this on the first episode, His mom, (laughs) he is so indebted to this woman. Like she really did make a really good person and teach him how to be a really good person and gave him, and I think this is something that not a lot of people do, like gave him a lot of freedom to Mm -hmm. like, like she knew there was something off about him. He's not going to be a scholar, but he really loves this thing. And I don't think most parents do that.
1: Have you read her Um, biography?
0: Um, no, but I, I didn't read to. it. It's
2: I read. I don't know if it's the same thing. It's not necessarily biography, but it's um, she interviews the parents of other famous musicians. Is that the one you're talking about?
1: From cradle to stage, I think. Yeah, is yeah, what it's yeah. Called. yeah, yeah.
2: It's good. It's yeah. really good. Fascinating
1: book, you know. And that's it's so funny that it came out before Dave Grohl's actual autobiography.
2: It is weird. And I listened to it, and at the end, she interviews him. It's a one-on-one
0: interview with him and his mom. It's super, super, really sweet. sweet.
1: That's really sweet.
0: I have to listen to that. That's so cute. I'm gonna cry right now. Now you have to, and they're and they're both just like giggling the whole time. I'm like, you guys are gross. Aww. Like it's so cute. Meanwhile, my parents were just in town for a week, and I was just telling Kate how I could go a whole like two years not speaking to them. Like yeah,
2: like a lot. <laughs> yeah, Well he maybe he does. He's on tour for years, and then he's like, Mom, I love you. So maybe Aww. that's why it works.
0: <laughs> no, he calls her from the road. That was in the book. Yeah. Oh, you're right, you're right you're right. When there were no cell phones, this man would find a gas station. Yeah, you're right his mama like <laughs> i forgot he's committed he's committed,
1: he's committed. anyway the so reason why i him. brought up the biography is because it's a it's a good book and the quizzical part about that book is that the color and the shape is almost not mentioned at all in the book which is so strange because he even admits it the only thing he says about the record in the book is that it is considered to be their most popular record mm-hmm. you know and and that makes sense like it's my favorite record if you polled the random person on the street, they would probably say that, that that record, even if they don't know the name of it, they know the one that Everlong's off of.
2: Oh, for you sure. Know. Yeah.
1: So, but but he doesn't mention it at all in the biography. You know, he kind of just sort of skips over the details. And I think that speaks to how fraught the gestation period of that record actually was.
2: yeah definitely and that's a lot of some of the stuff we're gonna Gabby usually handles like the album specifics but I've got and you can jump in whatever you want Rob when I start like the the background
0: stuff because I didn't know any of that I didn't know anything about it it's quite a story it's crazy it's really crazy let's jump into it let's do it so Kate what did you research what did you figure out
2: well the very first thing I figured we should address which for some reason we did not uh in episode one do either of you know what Foo Fighters actually means
1: I do
0: Oh Gabby, do you? Oh my no, I don't. Rob gets the gold star. Go ahead, Rob. <laughs> what does it mean?
1: <laughs> it's an alien reference. Or it's what it's what people used to call UFOs, essentially. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Exactly. It's a Foo World Fighters. War II term for UFO. They didn't have that yet. So they would call them Foo Fighters, which is way cooler. I don't know. Wh- why Why did we switch to UFO? Why are we doing that's that? That's way cooler. Yeah. So he was just reading books about aliens and stuff, and, and, he, and he picked it. And Gabby, you had mentioned, you know, he was trying to hide who he was. He didn't want to be like the drummer from Nirvana with an album. Yeah. But he also wanted it to seem like a group. So that's why he, Foo Fighters, the plural, he wanted it to sound like a band. So I was like, all right, cool. Mm-hmm. And then something we also did not address, we did talk about how they toured the crap out of that first album, but we didn't talk about the band for that album because he recorded everything alone. So in order to go tour, he went to go see Sunny Day Real Estate, which is a Seattle-based emo rock band. And um, in 95, they were uh, doing a, a last tour. They have broken up and reassembled several, several times. But um, they already knew it was over. They were playing the last couple of shows. Dave went to go see them, and he gave his tape to the bass player, Nate Mendel, and the drummer, William Goldsmith, and was like, take a listen. They jammed. They gelled. Dave was like, you want to be in my band? And they were like, Yep and then they needed another guitarist so he called up Pat Smear, who Gabby and I, we discussed, he was in Nirvana for the last year of their existence so that was the touring band for the first album, so we had addressed how they toured like crazy Um, They actually, I think it was something like over 16 months, it was like a very very long time, I watched the documentary back and forth, if you guys haven't it's very good, and in it Dave says they were playing basically 6 shows per week 300 to 600 people a show $500 a night, and as as the tour went on, the venues got bigger, more people were there, and at that time, Pat Smear was actually, like, not really enjoying it. It was, like, a little much for him, and when Nirvana ended, he had kind of, like, retired, so I, d- he didn't really want to be doing this, and Dave, because he's charismatic, was like, come on, be my new band, like, it'll be great. So, by the end of that tour... They're starting to work on album two, and uh, they work with producer Gil Norton, who is famous for working with uh, the Pixies, Echo and the Bunnymen, Tribe, Jimmy Eat World, Dashboard, The Distillers, Counting Crows, Bayside, who is my favorite band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was like, what? Um, So they start recording in Seattle, and at the time, Nate and William... We're having a tough time because Gil had really high standards. And so then, Rob, I know you know about this. Why don't you tell us about the drama with William and Dave?
1: Oh, yeah. So William Goldsmith is a good drummer. You can tell because you just listen to Sunny Day Real Estate, and then you know, like, that's a dope drummer. Totally. Dave, I have to imagine, just had really high standards for what he wanted his record to sound like. He was feeling the pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, himself coming off of one of the biggest bands in the world being known for adding that drum sound so they were recording i believe at bear creek uh, which is a place in in washington and Mm -hmm. um, the sessions weren't going terribly well dave wasn't really happy with how they were sounding when they relocated to another studio goldsmith wasn't there yet and dave took the time to just re-record essentially all of the drum parts that goldsmith had laid down and then goldsmith found out and he was not very happy with that To the point where he was like, okay, that's it. I can't do this. You know, they had a disagreement and then he ended up leaving the band.
2: Yeah. Awkward. I was so, I was so conflicted when I was watching that part of the documentary because as we said, Dave is like so charismatic, seems like such a great dude and being in a band, like that's like a really dick move
1: Mm -hmm.
2: to like not have a conversation and be like, listen, like things aren't going well just to do it Mm -hmm. and then tell him after the fact. It's just rough. And you know, when all that came to light, obviously, William was upset. And Dave even said to him, like, look, you're a great drummer. I want you to be our live drummer. But I am, like, I'm keeping my tracks on this album. And William was like, I'm out, bro. Like, not doing it.
1: It's one of my biggest problems with the book, even though I really liked it, is that he focuses a lot on the best parts of his career. Mm. Like, it's essentially a collection of highlights. And that's probably why he didn't want to talk about the color and the shape that much. Because... He doesn't. I don't think he really wanted to get into how much of a dick he was to Goldsmith in that moment. You know, even though he was, because he was also, I think, exiting his first marriage. Like yes,
0: yes. Yeah. His, his
1: marriage with Jennifer Youngblood was on uh, rocky waters, and uh, that was probably causing him a lot of stress as well. You know, which is why the record is so obsessed with relationship stuff. And then, so that on top of the strife with Goldsmith and all that, like you can tell he's probably not terribly proud of that moment or or he doesn't consider it to be a highlight of his career despite the fact that the product ended up being incredible
2: it's a tough time
0: to revisit i'm sure for Mm -hmm. him yeah do you think and i'm just gonna play devil's advocate here because i know i get that the band was it's it was dave by himself and then he toured with these guys and he pulled them in and at what point did they feel that they are really in a band together or are they dave Grohl's band and I think if in the early days, if it was the latter and your players that Dave Grohl has in his band, he can do whatever the fuck he mm. wants.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think that the band really felt like a band, at least a Grohl until the next record.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You
1: know? But this one I feel like you could definitely tell that it was still like even though he intended for the color and the shape to be more of a full band. Effort than anything before, just because of his actions and intentions, and and the way that it just ended up being executed, it it kind of is like a mixture between like a full band effort, but it's also essentially Dave Grohl's another Dave Grohl solo record, almost.
0: Yeah,
2: it really is. And I think also part of the problem is if they were told, "Hey, these are my songs. I want you to play them this way," it would have been different. And who knows? Maybe William would have been like, "No, I don't do that." But you're Basically taking 50% of Sunny Day Real Estate, which is an original band, mm-hmm. I'm sure they went into this thinking, oh, new band. Like, we're going to be creative <laughs> together. And so yeah. to yeah. then be told, like, oh, I just redid all your parts. Like,
0: mm-hmm. they both obviously thought something else was happening. Yeah. yeah. That was I the- mean, it's... Go on. I'm sorry. No, it's, noted, it's worth noting that the writing credits for most of the songs on this record are Dave and Nate. Yeah, like the writing credits are shared, even though on, mo- on most, if not all, of the tracks are drummed by Dave. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. They did write them together. So it does seem like there's conflicting, like, are we a band? Are we not a band situation? Because if this was like first record, Dave's basically writing all the parts and telling you what to play because he pays you. Yeah. Like this is not it looks like maybe that's not what happened.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. mixture of both. I think yeah. sure. I don't I don't think it's as as black and white as it being a Dave Grohl solo album or not.
2: Yeah, I agree. And maybe that's why it's difficult for him to visit. He doesn't want to talk about it. And then just before we get into the tracks, right, so that's the recording drama. But then there was even more drama when they go out to tour this album. So obviously they need a new drummer. Like they have all these songs, they're ready to go on tour, and their drummer just left. Um, So enter Taylor Hawkins, who at the time was drumming for Alanis Morissette, who was huge at this time, right, this was like her era. Dave was actually familiar with him, and Hawkins heard on the radio that the drummer for Foo Fighters had left, and he was interested in it, and his brother was like, you should play for that band, Um, and Dave had seen him play, so Dave actually reached out to him, and rather than just say, like, hey, will you leave Alanis, like, do you want to be part of this, he asks him, do you know any good drummers? (laughs) because <laughs> he didn't know like how to ask him like just like leave your situation that's pretty funny yeah so taylor was like
0: um yeah me i want to <laughs> do it highly <Yeah."> <laughs> passive aggressive kind of, like, yeah. really 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 strange. like he knew
2: exactly what he was doing so that happens they're drumming with him and they're just about to go on tour and pat smear at rehearsal is like hey guys i quit i don't want to be in the band anymore i don't want to go on tour again and dave is like you're killing me killing me. Like, what the hell is happening? So he knows Pat very well, and he's like, listen, do me a solid. Hang on till we get someone else. It'll be a couple of weeks. Turns into about six months, but Pat stays because he's a good dude. But... In the first episode, we talked about Dave's first band, Scream. Uh, he left them on, like, okay terms, but he was very friendly with Franz Stahl, who was the guitarist for Scream. And so when Pat was like, I'm out, Dave was like, hold on, let me call this guy. Um, and so the, Franz is the one who toured with them for this album. And he didn't even audition, because they were kind of uh, under like, under, under the gun. Under, is that the phrase, right? Like, yeah, they sure. had to figure this out, and... Yeah. Uh, they just pulled them in and they were like look we're going on tour you're going to play with us so that was the recording band and now we have the touring band for this album so just like so many
0: moving parts Mm -hmm. rock drama makes me really not miss being an artist manager yeah sounds (laughs) fucking (laughs) annoying as hell Mm -hmm. yeah
2: yeah oh man but then but then they did it and we can dive
0: into the tracks now let's do it alright y'all the color and the shape oh I forgot to add the release date Did oh you? yeah um uh,
1: I believe it was May 20th 1997 yeah because it just turned 25 years old
0: yes that's right uh, came out on Roswell Records technically but it was distributed by Capital
1: there's another Foo Fighters reference because Roswell is uh oh yes. really in Mexico. yeah
0: yes oh, look at that um, so, this is the official debut, as we've just discussed, of Foo Fighters as a band. Um, as you know, the first one was just Dave and Barrett Jones, who I guess is kind of treated as a demo version of what a Foo Fighters album would be. So, it was kind of a blueprint. Uh, this album was an international success, um, and it kind of, as Kay just said, we kind of had a lineup and then didn't, and then did again. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what happens on album three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it is primarily inspired by Dave's uh, divorce from Jennifer Youngblood in 1996. And the album is a little introspective and it mixes uh up-tempo tracks and slow tracks and that was intentional um yeah. to kind of reflect how he was going back and forth during this separation um with jennifer so let's get into it we have track one is doll it's produced by gil Norton, and it's written by dave Grohl, pat smear and nate mendel what do you got kate i thought this was a weird choice for an opener
2: mm. it kind of felt to me initially like it should have been in the middle somewhere, like a palate cleanser. It actually made me think of what Paramore did on their self-titled, oh, do you yeah, remember like the, the little ukulele, ukulele thingies? Yeah. Which I do like, but it was so short that I was kind of like, what's happening here? I I really was wondering what fans felt when they heard this as the first track. Like if they were like, oh no. Like, yeah. The, like, This is not what I signed up for. But I do think it shows off his vocal range really well. Like the man can actually sing.
0: He sounds really good. I think immediately from the jump, you hear the different sound quality immediately. Mm
2: -hmm. Immediately.
0: And me. yeah and I I know it is a weird track but I think it might be the most punk rock thing to have a minute and a half acoustic <laughs> opener trick. Yeah. so it's I love it <laughs> good good call good call
2: um and then <clears throat> the lyric I pulled y- you know in all the time that we've shared I've never been so scared and alone it's like okay that's fine but this lyric is recalled later on, and I just thought it was really neat. And then a quote from Dave about the song. He says, basically, the song is about being afraid to enter into something that you're not prepared for. And he also has said that "Doll" is one of his favorites off this album.
1: I think that makes sense. Yeah? I what think do you think? A, well, because I don't... It is kind of unique in the Foo Fighters discography. Mm-hmm. You know? It's not... A lot of the songs in their sprawling discography are very much like you—you you just listen once, and you're like, "This is rock. This is ballad. This is like—they they fit like types." Mm-hmm. I don't think "Doll" really fits in any particular category. It's—it is like a palate cleanser. It's like a red herring for. For the oomph of the next track, I, I can see him sort of looking at this and being like, "I made a really lovely, lovely little track that I don't normally do." Yeah, I think that artists, when they look back and they see unique moments, I think those are the ones that they tend to be proud of.
2: That, I guess that makes sense. I wasn't thinking about it like that.
1: Mm.
2: I still think it's punk rock as fuck to really <laughs> <gonna> have. <happen before. laughs> It's it's pretty ballsy. It's pretty ballsy. I'm so glad
0: it's acoustic and he didn't go, like, let's add electric guitars and make it, like, a real, like, punk rock one and a half minute. For sure. I love it. I think it's, I like it.
1: Can I just say, too, Nate Mendel's bass line on that track is fantastic. It's, like, so versatile. It, like, walks up and down, like... I like the
0: the the, the arrangements on I like almost every instrument on every track on this album even if I may not like the songs mm-hmm. are all really impressive.
1: Yeah. They're all yeah. they're all interesting.
0: Yeah. You know. And Nate in particular, I have this note for some specific songs but as a whole
2: this is someone I I didn't even know his name before I started doing this. And, like, who would ever give the bass player of the Foo Fighters a second thought? Sorry, Nate. But he's very good. If it. you really listen to the songs, like, a lot of them, he has such a key part in the, yeah. in the melody and what's carrying it. I was just so impressed.
0: You just broke the
2: hearts of bass <laughs> players in so the world. So <laughs> Wait, can I just pause right now? I wasn't going to tell this story, but now's the time. Do you guys remember that show, Fanatic, on MTV? Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Oh, Rob, how old are you? Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I'm like 30. (laughs) Oh, okay. Oh, okay. not so bad. bad. We're we're 36.
1: Okay. Yeah, 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 I'm just also not terribly (laughs) pop culture. Uh, Okay, well,
2: let me tell you about the show, Rob. So basically, Fanatic was an MTV show. It was like semi-reality. It was like kind of weird. And basically, you would be like, I love... Dave Grohl. I love him so much. You have posters all over your room. You go see him all the time. And you would go to like an event and Dave Grohl would like appear and then you meet him and then like, you freak out because you're a fan. And it was like, Oh my God, surprise, surprise. Mm. So I was I I didn't like anyone to that degree. But when I was younger, I had a strategy for that show if I were ever to be on that show. And my strategy was you pick a lesser known member of the band. And I remember saying to my friends, like the bass player of Foo Fighters, who the hell is that? Because you know that Dave is going to show up. And that was my strategy for how I would like, meet someone famous. And now that I feel like I know more about Nate, I'm like, that's dick
0: to do <laughs> like, well for this new strategy you should apply to fanatic and yeah. ask to meet Dave yeah. bro, and then you'll get to meet Nate if yeah it's exactly. I'll be like jokes on you
2: Dave I wanted no, to meet it's Nate not. actually <laughs> no. oh, God. although wouldn't Definitely it be amazing not. if we revisited that
0: that would be a good show to bring back <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> he needs good. more
1: programming that isn't ridiculousness. Yeah,
0: is yeah. so true.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, that ridiculousness has been on for way too long. Yeah. Oh, God. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, uh, track two, Monkey Wrench, same credits, produced by Gil Norton, written by Dave, Pat, and Nate. Okay, this was the first single, April 28th, Ooh.
2: 1997. I think this song is killer. Personally, I probably would have made it the album opener. But I do think, like, from "Doll," like, the nice quiet into this punch in the face is just such a smart move. And "Doll" is just long enough where people are still listening, where they're like, what the fuck is happening? And then this song comes, and then you're like, oh, okay, like, we're great. I have a note here about the bass line. It's really standing out to me in a way that I hadn't really heard it before. I do remember being 11 and trying to sing the bridge in one breath. I remember like <laughs> practicing it. It is so hard to do, and I read that Dave can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And so he'll like let the audience scream it, or he'll just leave words out so he can breathe because the man will like legitimately pass out.
1: Like, did he do that in one breath?
2: Oh yeah, when they recorded it, it was in one breath.
1: Holy shit! That yeah, is which is cra- crazy. And he used to be
2: able to do it, and now he's older you know, like, and he can't. Which I, I mean, you know, makes sense. Sad. To you, like. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sad.
1: yeah. Disappointing. sad.
2: Yeah. Disappointing. I Yeah. <laughs> Aging. <laughs> <Boom>. Yeah. <laughs> Don't recommend. Um, I was looking up just some fun facts. So from songfacts.com, he's quoted as saying, it's about living with someone and feeling like you're in a fucking cell. And then I wound up getting a divorce. So, so that's what the song is about. <laughs>
0: poor Jennifer, what a poor Jennifer!
2: Oh, sorry, Jen. And this was the first song that he re-recorded on drums, and he did it in one take. So this is mm-hmm. the take, which I found yeah. to be crazy impressive. And then finally, which happened, like this is in- for future episodes, the tour where he fell and he broke his leg. This was the song they were doing when he legitimately fell off the stage and broke his leg. It was this song,
0: <laughs> which makes it sense less- to me.
1: It was more wrench than Monkey.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a lot on this song other than I. Uh, this is one of the first Foo Fighters songs I remember mm-hmm. At the time when the Foo Fighters came out And like TRL was the thing, right? That's like where everyone went to watch music videos And you would see all the most popular songs And I remember this being a part of that I was deep, deep in a Backstreet Boys <laughs> fandom <laughs> Okay And all I, like I wouldn't listen to anything else but like bubblegum pop out of principle my life yeah yeah it just didn't appeal to me but i remember like this song being one that i was like i tolerate this (laughs) this is one that i tolerate yeah but i mean reflective of everything you just said kate like listening back to it now the bass line stands out to me yeah more than anything and i just like i love the energy i love his vocal performance i just think it's so it's so fucking good and it's one of my favorites on this album Hmm. what do you think rob
1: this is the one where it is evident to me how much Gil Norton adds to this record. Like, mm. in retrospect, I listened back to, like, Nevermind, you know, where Kurt Cobain would complain about the fact that it sounds like a Motley Crue record because it's so stylized and radio-friendly. radio, radio friendly. Yeah. And compared to the the first Foo Fighters record, this one is just, it's, it's spit-shined, the yeah. digital production is flawless, like, and mm. because of that, it you listen to it and it obviously sounds like an artifact from 1997 but there's nothing wrong with that now because a that kind of music is cool again now mm-hmm. and it just it maintains its power like maybe it got remastered recently but just it it just leaps out of the speakers
2: yeah, that song does
1: yeah. um it's such it's, a hell it, of yeah. a single
2: Ugh. so and what such a, a smart good move for the yeah. first one like this is what the people want put it out there you know it's mm-hmm. what they're expecting it's good do it
0: and i think it was also like it's still very there's nothing about monkey wrench or this entire album that's a far off cry from the first album mm-hmm. that right he released with the food fighters like it was in line it was just like that but polished this sounds better a little yeah. more evolved cleaner yes yeah. exactly exactly all right track three hey johnny park okay This song, to me, stands
2: out as the first, like, truly well-crafted Foo Fighter song so far. I love a lot of the other songs, but I feel like a lot of the other songs rely on, like, energy and emotion. Mm. And I feel like this song was, like, they thought about the dynamics, they thought about who's coming in when. It just, like, the opening riff just feels so iconic and legendary and how it gets revisited in the bridge. I don't know. There's just something about it where I was like, this is like above everything you've been doing so far.
0: Yeah, I thought his... When this track came on, I was like, I've never heard this man sound this good before. Like The the vocal performance was very... I'm assuming it was intentionally this strong, but I think it stands out as best vocal performance out of all the other tracks on this album. To wow. Me. Anyway.
2: Interesting. I don't know if I would agree with best, but, it, but it's showing he, a side. Well, he does sound great. Yes. But it's showing a side that like, it's just like, oh, this band can actually do like, a lot of stuff you know they're not just pigeonholed one fun fact from songfacts.com uh it says when dave girl was young his best friend who lived across the street was named johnny park and he hadn't heard from him since he was about 14 years old so he thought if he named a song after him johnny park might call him
0: <laughs> did johnny i read that too but there was no like resolution like did he it? i don't know i never other? found out and then i read too that the lyrics are not at all connected. And
2: we talked about in album one, how he wrote, Oh George. And the song itself has nothing to do with George from the Beatles, but he titled it after him. And this is just the thing that he seems to do. And as a songwriter, that just feels insanity to me. Like, I don't understand how you can have a song about something and then name it something completely unrelated. He
1: could be hiding something too. Yeah, you know, he could like, be. Uh, Cause I remember listening to this song and it's so cliche, but even though he states, like, oh, this was written for my old friend Johnny Park. There mm-hmm. are some lyrics that that point to Kirk Cobain in this song ah. for me. Like, uh, the second verse. Like, uh, your eyes still remind me of angels that hover above eyes that can change from blind to blue. Ooh.
2: And then the one line mm-hmm. from the
1: chorus, am I selling you out? You know? Yeah. Which, to me, thinking about hiring somebody like Gil Norton, who was responsible for the sound, partly responsible, at least for the loud soft dynamics of the pixies that Nirvana would eventually crib mm-hmm. and popularize. like this is very much to me, and this and, and the dynamics on this song specifically also link it to it. This feels to me like a very nirvana adjacent record. Probably mm. more so, I think, than anything else in their discography. And so mm. when I hear that line, I'm always referred to like m- maybe he's subconsciously saying that, asking that to Cobain. You know, that's what I, I get out of this particular song.
0: Interesting. I hear that. That's an interesting, like, connection. But I feel like the Cobain thing chases him for almost every song he writes. Like, if you try really mm. hard, you could kind of be like, oh, this song is also about Cobain. Oh, this song, like... It could. Like, it could. But I definitely see it now, like, uh, like reading these lyrics over, like, I totally hear that.
1: It's funny because uh, he... I think that partly the intention to to make Foo Fighters a full band effort, and not just I'm Dave Grohl, is that he, at that point, was known worldwide as the drummer for Nirvana. And I think more so than making himself a musician in his own right, I think he just wanted to get away from that. Mm -hmm. He he really, really wanted to have a band that felt like a band, and not just I'm the leader of a band called Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters, or whatever. And I think that didn't start happening until he met Taylor Hawkins and and that they started recording the album after this. Like, here, it's so close to Nirvana's dynamics and so much of the music. And, and, and the fact that it's still 97, it's only three years after Cobain died, and Nirvana is still on the, the minds and lips of not just all the population, but the music executives as well. Like, I think he really just wanted to break away from that. And uh, that dissonance, you know, of him trying to break away from Nirvana, but still peddling in that loud, soft dynamic that yeah. they were known for. I mm. think that makes for a really interesting point whenever I revisit this record.
2: Interesting. It is. And I, I read somewhere, I might have read it when we were researching for album one, that, you know, at the time, he was pretty open about it. Like, it was really frustrating that people kept comparing it to Nirvana, or, like, when they were touring album one, fans would scream out, I think he wrote a song, Magnolia, I think I think that's the name of it, yeah, and Nirvana was, would play it. Mm-hmm. And, and the fans were screaming for that when the Foo Fighters were playing, and he wouldn't play it. And he was annoyed. And he, there was a quote somewhere where he was like, You know, these people just wanted to hear more Nirvana or something to the effect of, like, they didn't think, they thought that I was trying to copy that sound, but I was in Nirvana. Like, I mm-hmm. like that sound. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was a part of the creation of that sound. So, yeah, yeah. My, my music is going to kind of sound like that. This is what I do.
1: Yeah. He hired Norton for a reason. He yeah. really, really liked that sound.
2: Yeah, just interesting, but I'd have to read the lyrics over and listen again. I didn't uh, make that connection.
1: Yeah. Anyway, this is such a good song. This is like one of my favorites off the record. Yeah, I, really I like love my favorite thing about this song is the second line of the chorus when he adds the harmonies. That's yeah. such an inspired choice.
0: Uh, and I, we'll get into this in other tracks because this is my note for a few. But he has a really good pop sensibility Mm. he knows when to add a little harmony he knows when to add like these things that are traditionally pop music things like he sprinkles them in a little bit in a way that i think has helped make this band commercially successful while not like you know bands that are commercially successful now are like imagine dragons and maroon 5 which Uh, is garbage like trash Mm-hmm. but the, you know he manages to do that while just by just sprinkling in little elements and still genuinely making a sound that he really enjoys mm. yeah it's very interesting yeah um all right track four uh same credits produced by Gil, written by dave Pattonate. my poor brain
2: i have a note that goldsmith is credited with the drums on this but only on the verses which i find to be really weird
0: I saw him on the drum credit list on Genius, yeah. But I didn't like. That's not the credits that I shout out. But not like, a the fish, Not the official.
2: But I just thought it would be weird that you would keep part of it and not just redo all of it. But anyway, and it's
1: so shady because the verses are so quiet.
2: Right. I this, oh, like, <laughs> this is weird. Maybe Dave couldn't get it that quiet. I don't know. I don't know. Awesome, but I was I like, I got no clue. Who knows? Um, I put that. I love how this starts. The idea of, like, the chaotic crazy and flowing into such a simple, poppy verse, I literally cannot not smile when the verse starts. Mm -hmm. I've listened to this song, like, 20 times in the last two days, and every single time I'm grinning like an idiot, like, as soon as the verse starts. I just love it. Yeah, My favorite line is, sometimes I feel like getting stuck between the handshake and the fuck, and Mm -hmm. I just think it describes this, like, Super sweet, perfect part of a new relationship where like you're getting to know each other, but like you don't really know each other that well and you're just kind of excited about it and you don't want to fuck shit up. And then a quote from him, this song is an experiment with dynamics, whether it's the lyrics or the sound of the song, just going from dreamy vocals to screamy vocals and Jackson 5 to Black Black Sabbath, sling it all in there. And another fun
0: fact, the song used to be called Chicken Derby love that <laughs> I have that same quote in my notes and okay like that is what I heard in this song not necessarily those references that he said Jackson 5 and Black Sabbath but right. I was just like it's it's very pop and like nice and then it goes into like these screams and shredding guitars yeah. and how did he make both of those things work and there was another note that I have here, and now I have to go back and listen to it, I didn't realize this was in there, that this song reminds me of uh, the new radicals, You Get What You Give. Oh you my, I hear it as soon as you said new radicals. Mm-hmm. I love that song, by the mm-hmm. way. That's a fucking great song. That song is <laughs> yeah. so good. Mm. Oh, wow, I do hear that. Yeah.
1: This song, uh, When you're, the whole record is filled with those loud, soft dynamics, but this is the yeah. one... That's so absurdly loud where it's absurdly soft at the same time like you're mm. alternating. Yeah. It's just so you said that um you smile whenever you hear the voice the verse. I always yeah. smile whenever the chorus comes in cuz ah, it comes in so We're both just smiling. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is this is a great song. I feel like it's a little underrated. Totally in the, underrated. In the Fulcriters catalog. This one this one is a super super effective track for sure. Also like you mentioned that lyric where he says between the handshake and the fuck, there's only a couple of expletives on the record. Hmm. And this was during a time, I feel like a lot of American rock music, a lot of American music in general, in the late 90s, people are so concerned with getting away with swearing. Mm-hmm. Like, if you notice that a lot of the music made then, they'll really linger on like an expletive. Like, yeah. they'll, they'll just say it, you know, it'll, like, come off the tongue, and then they are expecting their audience, which is usually a younger audience, to be like, oh my god, he said it. Right, you know? right. There was just this weird obsession with that during that time period, you know, and you hear it a little bit on this record.
2: You do, and you know what's so weird is, like, I I only realize right now as you're saying it, he doesn't really curse that much.
1: Mm.
0: It's kind. I of, didn't even make that connection. I didn't either. Now, now I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, there's not that many explicit. I don't know
2: if here. I could name I another song where he does, like off the top of my head. But he says
1: it on I, Monkey Wrench. He says yeah. shit.
0: Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right.
1: Yeah, I can't think of anything else either, though.
0: But wow, that's really interesting. Well, listen, his mom raised a really good boy. You know, yeah, exactly. You Very you clean know. cut very clean cut yeah exactly. and and to your
2: point too Rob um, I don't know if you're a big reader Gabby another book you would love The 90s by Chuck Klosterman mm. it's just like fascinating but he goes into all the like politics music pop culture everything and there's a whole chapter there about the censorship of mm. of music and how that was like such a big thing at the time so it's just kind of interesting that this is 97 and, like, all that was happening with the CDs, with, like, the little label on the front. Like, I remember when that was,
0: like, starting. That, so. that did yeah. start
1: in the 90s, didn't it? The explicit yeah. content. Yeah. The little advisory, yeah.
0: Tipper Gore was all. Tipper man. Tipper
1: Gore. Tipper (laughs) Tipper Gore. It sounds like something you say before you drink.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In a pub. (laughs) Tipper Gore. Tipper Gore. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, that's someone's actual name. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Alrighty. Track five. Wind up. All right. So
2: this one, I do like it, but my note was that I feel like the chorus of My Poor Brain and all of Wind Up are too sonically similar. Mm-hmm. I feel like My Poor Brain has more melodic opportunities in there and Wind Up is more aggressive, which I do like, but I kind of wish they were separated in the track listing. A few times when I listened, the songs went right into each other, and I thought it was like an eight-minute song. Like, I didn't really realize we had stopped. Interesting. Yeah. And so I just feel out of all the tracks, this one has the least amount of dynamics, Like it kind of
0: comes in at a 10, and I feel like it just stays there. Which, if that's what you're in the mood for, that's good. I totally agree. I wrote that this song reminds me of every song Muse has ever released. Yeah! yeah. (laughs) That is Muse. They're at 10 the entire time. The whole time.
2: (laughs) I would
1: love to see them do a cover of this song.
0: Oh, Oh, that would be be so cool.
2: That would be so cool. Um, So I do enjoy the song. I like the chorus the best. Some info I found. uh, Dave has been quoted as saying that this is the story of a relationship between a journalist and a musician, which, if you Mm. kind of read the lyrics, that makes sense. And there's a bunch of weird weird facts here he says the word paramania uh which he made up he made that word up and <laughs> is according to the dictionary <laughs> now? So well different. well according to the foo fighters official site so i guess they have like i don't know if they have like an like a glossary or something i didn't go check it out but um it's intended to mean obsessed with the abnormal which there probably is a word for that already but he he made it paramania i was paramania. like Okay, yeah, weird. Uh, And then there's a line where in the song he says, I want a song that's indelible like Manimal. And they think he's referring to a song, Manimal, by The Germs, which was Pat Smear's band.
1: Oh, I did not know that.
2: Yeah, I listened to it. It's the most aggressive punk you'll ever hear. I got through, like, the first five (laughs) seconds, and I was like, got it, understood, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I know all I need to know. It was, like, too punk for me, but interesting.
1: Favorite thing about this song is the... I really love the hook, the chords, the one that goes... I love how they yeah. go up and down. For some reason, I love that. They're just so chunky, and they make me so happy. And yeah. the lyrics to me are just so stupid in this uh, in this particular... And, and you know, made-up words... Uh, the chorus doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Like I know there's a meaning behind it, you can read it, but I'm just like, Ugh. Dave Grohl to me was never the most. He was never the best lyricist to me, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, you don't really well, listen to like a Foo
1: Fighters record. For Gil
0: lyrics, really, anyway. yeah, wow. what I read was that Gil really pushed him on this record because the first record is basically nonsense lyrics.
1: Nonsense, absolutely. So
0: this is like his first time really trying to write actual lyrics. Mm we'll give him a little space
2: for that (laughs) but some of them some of the lyrics on this album are outrageously good i wouldn't say the majority at all Mm -hmm. but there are some songs where there's a line or two where i'm like oh shit like that is great but then there's a lot of nonsense too so i'm always like "Uh," like where are we
1: this album definitely features some of girls best lyric writing for Mm. sure
2: so 100%. far for me we'll have to yeah. see when I get into the later ones but I I can see him growing for sure lyrically but I guess that's uh, Gil's doing maybe
0: I'm googling paramania dictionary and it's not in Webster's but it's in a lot of other online dictionaries <laughs> so now I think Dave Grohl really invented a word there yeah there's
1: a song by Abby Roberts called Paramaniac oh yeah I guess they just adapt I mean that's the thing about words is that they could just pop out of nowhere yeah you know yeah the dictionary doesn't invent them. We do.
0: That's, no, tr- that's we true. Do. No. That's true. Right. We have the power.
1: We have the power.
0: Yeah. Now I'm going to think of what word I'm going to invent. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, all right. Track six, Up in Arms. Uh, same credits. Produced by Gil Norton. Written by Dave Grohl, Pat Smear, and Nate Mendel. This one, I also have Goldsmith credit on drums, but
2: only the slow intro. So maybe... <laughs> this is on purpose, I think. Yeah, maybe, it's so shady. It's so and shady. It, and it sounds like he was really good at like the soft, emotive stuff, and Dave can't do it, because he's like powerhouse crazy drums. So maybe he recognized, like, okay, this part's good, but I'm now gonna... Like, I'm gonna do the rest. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe... Or maybe this is a That would make sense to
1: me, for sure.
2: Yeah. It's still, like, way dick. Um, So my notes are that I love the arrangement. I think the soft vocal is such a nice change coming out of the previous song. Mm. And when the chorus kicks in, it's still friendly and fun. Like, it's not super aggressive, but it definitely goes more rock. Um, This song ties into doll for me. Like, when I hear this, doll kind of makes sense. Like I'm like, all right. So these guys are on the same team. Okay, I hear you. And my last note was, it's just a cute little love song, and it makes me want to jump around. It's just so cute.
0: I I feel like this song is more about like an on and off couple. Con- yeah, that's what I took away from it. And I thought, like, given the context of that story that he's building, it's. Kind of a genius choice to go from like acoustic and soft into like really really loud to like totally. juxtapose that. So mm-hmm. I I noted that I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that choice.
1: Mm. I have one little bit trivia bit, Ooh. and it was when he was recording this song, Gil was in the booth, and he was he wanted to really slyly acknowledge Gil's uh, presence on the record. So the the lyric on the chorus goes. um Always and I could not forget you, girl. Mm-hmm. And then on the very last one, he goes, "I could not forget you, Gil." And you can hear it at the end of the song, like it was intended <gasps> to be directed towards Gil Norton.
0: That's cute. Yeah, That's it's adorable.
1: So cute, and that so- really does filter into. You're absolutely right. This is this is like a cute song. The fact that it starts on a major chord. There's a lot of those. Uh, it is like an upbeat. You know, even though it starts out kind of moro- not morose, but, like, low energy, like, it is very much still, like, supposed to be, like, a more uplifting, yeah. upbeat track. Yeah, That being said, it's definitely, to me, this is a lower on the list for me, as far as uh, my personal favorite songs off the record. It's just, yeah. it's got that, like, yeah. mid, mid-album slog feel where it's like, this is not terribly, especially with what comes afterwards.
0: Yes, you know. it's perfectly placed. Yeah, yeah,
1: I on do on agree that with time. that there for sure. I was
2: gonna say, as Gabby would say, it's in the middle for a reason.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's in the middle for a reason. <laughs> That's She's a line. It's not a standout. <laughs> She's not gonna fuck up the momentum. You go or in the middle. In. She's right there. <laughs> All right, track
2: seven, my hero. This is the third single, January nineteenth, nineteen ninety eight. I don't know anyone who doesn't like this song this song has never not slapped it's It's so fucking good it's so good but what I will say is listening to it intently it kind of took on a different meaning for me and I just feel like it encompasses so many deep feelings like hope and encouragement I feel like it's an underdog song and I guess I never really thought about it that way before I think the drum bass combo is just killer it's, like, iconic. When you hear the beginning of this song, like... You know. It's like hearing a, you know, a, a Journey song or a, a Rolling Stone song. You're just like, oh, my God, this is it. Like, I know this. This is it. My favorite line I pulled was, uh, don't the best of them bleed it out while the rest of them peter out. I just thought that was really interesting. Mm. And an interesting fact from Wikipedia The recording of the song itself was done using two different drum tracks played simultaneously for the intro and the verses. On one track, Dave is playing using the bass drum, hi-hat, snare drum, and crash cymbals. On the other track, uh, it is again the bass drum, but he plays the rack and the floor toms as well as the snare. And because the drums are so complicated, they had to simplify
0: it for when they play it live.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: That's a really I've never heard of anyone making a production choice like that. Isn't that cool? I have to listen to this again. So he's like That's literally
2: crazy. playing the whole kit but you can't play all the parts at the same uh, time. Right. So he you basically need an extra was arm. His- twice. Yeah. yeah,
0: you would need you would need many arms, He really is. I said it on last episode, he's a human embodiment of Animal from the Muppet Babies. (laughs) He
2: (laughs) He
1: would be very happy with that comparison. Oh, yeah, I think he
0: would. He would love it. Totally. He has said
2: that this song is basically about all the heroes he's had in his life, ordinary people who do extraordinary things, and apparently when he was stuck in Hawaii at the start of the pandemic, he played it acoustically to raise money and spirits. Mm. He dedicated the song to everyone on the front lines, that is all wonderful but I did get a little bit of drama apparently John McCain used this song during mm-hmm. his 2008 presidential that. campaign yeah
1: it's amazing freaking uh, how many republican um political figures have you tried to use Foo Fighters songs because I know George Bush tried to use New Way Home
2: yeah yeah and he was also
1: not happy with it
2: no he was not happy with it and he said uh, quote the saddest thing about this is that my hero was written as a celebration of the common man and his extraordinary potential to have it appropriated without our knowledge and used in a manner that perverts the original sentiment of the lyric just tarnishes the song and I was like John McCain shame on you mm-hmm. shame on you yeah may he rest in peace may he rest in peace that well, being well, said also, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I like this song a lot and you know echo everything you say Kate there was one interesting I thought it was interesting the choice to, the vocal production on this is a little there's a distortion effect a little bit Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really interesting, considering for most of the other tracks, like crispness is what has kind of been coming through. Sure. So that stood cool. out to me. But I fucking love this song. It's a great song. Mm. I love working out to this song. It makes me feel like really powerful. powerful. Right. It's just like if you need a pick me up, put this song on. Put on my like if you're feeling bad about yourself, just put on my hero and look in the mirror and like glow face your face. Like you'll be fine.
1: He's talking about you. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, you're right i am
1: a hero
2: yeah (laughs) i'm my own hero. i'm gonna finish the last 10 minutes of this
1: treadmill yeah (laughs) (laughs) this to me it's not obviously it's not not the most famous song off of this record but to me this is the moment where we got the first glimpse of dave Grohl as a populist musician Mm -hmm. like Mm. as the populist musician that he would end up becoming like, this mm, yeah. is the very first glimpse, him literally reaching out to the working masses and being like, you're my hero, you're my hero, all of you are, you know? Yeah! Like, you you can tell that he, that's that's what he was starting to go for, that he would eventually hit even more on as he developed his his public persona and, and, and got out of his shell a little bit as as a frontman. This was the very first glimpse of that. This
0: was also, sorry, I read this was also another song where for people, fans at least, kind of thought, that the lyrics were tied to Kurt just Mm -hmm. to like reiterate my point that this happens all the time. I would never think that I would never think that.
1: Yeah. This one to me doesn't make sense for that.
2: No, because, and, and Gabby and I spoke about this. I don't know if we spoke about it on the episode, but Rob, since she's reading the book and I've read the book, I get the vibe that like, he very much appreciated everything Kurt, you know, did for him as a band. Um, But in the book, I didn't come away with the idea that they were besties at all. Mm -hmm. You know? I I think he pays respect to him, and he recognizes the importance, and maybe potentially if their friendship had been longer, but they were together for three years yeah it's not a long time it's not a long
0: time so and they lived together
1: for like just a little less than a year
0: yeah yeah
1: exactly.
0: yeah and there was a little bit of turmoil in nirvana so i like, think they were really good creative collaborators and that was kind of the and like friends because of yeah. that but like if the if kurt was still here and if that band broke up they they would have very peacefully gone their separate ways and i think yeah. so besties
2: yeah so just
0: the idea of then
2: for anyone to be like well of course he didn't write the book at the time so everyone's making assumptions about his friendship with kurt and all that so fine but like i would never think that this song is about him
1: yeah and, I, and kurt wouldn't
2: want that he would Not, never yeah. want a song like he, no that. he would laugh Ugh. oh yeah <laughs> he would think
1: it'd be <laughs> super hero? funny oh my <laughs> god 100 yeah. percent. and that makes sense
2: too have ever have either you
1: read um come as you are the nirvana biography
2: no. No, mm. I have not.
1: Fascinating read, first of all. Michael Azar, so good. But he really does capture what was going on in the band as they were growing bigger and bigger. Mm. And once Courtney entered the picture, she was all that Kurt sort of wanted to spend time with. And so everyone, after the heat had died down, they all just sort of started going their separate ways a little bit. Mm. So after after the initial period and the rise when they were living together, they didn't really have that much of a closeness after that mm, so it makes right. sense that that he wouldn't really consider him to be not like a bestie per right say
0: right you know yeah
1: but unfortunately he must feel like he's still gonna have to talk about it he's gonna have to talk about it for the rest of his life forever I mean,
0: he is unfortunately or fortunately i mean i'd rather somebody be the person that we designate to keep talking about nirvana because that's think true that's right. true
1: band that that's a band that should never be forgotten
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially myself as a new Seattleite, like, y'all don't forget here. Oh, no. (laughs) It's like a thing. Like, Uh, Nirvana played this venue. Where you're at right now, Nirvana was here. It's crazy.
1: Have you ever been to the Central Saloon in Pioneer Square?
0: I just read this on The Stranger this morning that now the Central Saloon just got, like, the owner just bought it, and now it will still exist.
1: Oh, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's a great venue for bands that are just starting out, but... A lot of those bands will go to the Central Saloon and they'll be like, wow, this is where Soundgarden played. Like, yeah. You see, like, the Bills from, like, back in the 90s when yeah. it was called the Central Tavern.
0: Fun yeah. Seattle fact, did you know that Pioneer Square has a basement floor that used to be the first floor?
1: Hmm. You go on underground tours. The underground, There's a whole yeah. underground oh. section of Seattle. Yeah. I still I haven't just seen this it. this with
0: my parents. I really? Was, my parents were here visiting, so we did it over the weekend and it's the tour guide was awesome. It was a really, really fun tour. But the history is uh, there was a huge fire that burned everything down. And there was poor infrastructure at the time because Ugh. the people who created the city did not take into account the tides like mm. we're on the water. And so the tides would come in and all of the sewage would back up into people's houses. And that was like a regular thing. Mm. And so when the city all burned down, they rebuilt it again, but they built it up. So now, in that section of Seattle, when you walk in on the first floor, you're actually on the second floor, and you can go down wow. and you see the original first floor. And now it's like a sub basement. Crazy, it's kind of crazy, crazy. That's insane. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll have to check wild. it out at some point. Yeah, you should do it. I'll send you the link to the one to the tour that I did. Um, it was really, really fun. It was really fun, and they like take you into some sections of Pioneer Square that still have their basements. Some people have like cemented them in, and they're not there, but other people still use them for storage, and some of them are still connected, so you can still walk. It was originally How set up weird. that you could walk down the street, but you were underground before they put the sidewalk over it. Oh, wow. So you're just walking wow. in a hole.
1: <laughs> Holy crap
0: that's crazy we'll yeah, have to check 33 it out. blocks are connected this way so wow. I'll send you the thing it's pretty cool so Kate when you come here we'll go do that oh it's my like, god well, maybe
1: I'll see you there, <laughs> oh, there you <laughs> back on track <laughs> <Here> we go.
0: <laughs> very nice alright track 8 uh, see you produced by Gil Norton written by Dave Grohl, Pat Smear and Nate Mendel I have a note
2: about uh, Lance Bangs Chris
0: Bilheimer
2: and Ryan Bosch are credited with the hand claps. Very really? important. Yeah. Who are those guys? I don't really Lance know. Lance Bangs shows up credit.
1: everywhere. Lance yeah. Bangs shows up literally everywhere.
2: Does, is this a real part? I didn't even look it up. Who is that? Are you being real? So La- yes.
1: So oh. Lance Bangs is, <laughs> he's A, a filmmaker. B, he is currently married to Corin Tucker of Slater-Kinney.
2: Oh, oh okay. they have
1: kids together. Yeah, he just shows up in rock history like everywhere I go. Like, and not just rock history, but like music history in general. I he, I haven't read his Wikipedia page, but it must be fascinating because like, he, wow. he just keeps popping up. He was the guy I believe that directed nineteen ninety one, the year punk broke, which yeah. was the uh, documentary but be- where uh, Sonic Youth and Nirvana went on tour when Nirvana was opening for them.
0: Huh. Okay.
1: Yeah, so he just pops up everywhere.
0: I, I'm looking it up on Genius right now, and it says he's a video director, and he's done videos for Green Day Nirvana and a bunch of other bands. Yeah. Well, he's also a very good hand clapper, apparently. <laughs> because Super they. Super strong wrist motion. Just yes. on time
2: and he everything. Knows where
1: to put them in front of the microphone. Yeah. So it doesn't clip. Yeah. You know.
2: <laughs> All right, so my notes are just a fun, cute song. I think his voice is so, so good on this. Mm. I think this song also does a great job of showing the versatility of the band. We've got a shaker, a tambourine, there's this, like, walking bass line. And, like, Mm. it was just so refreshing at this point in the album. I was like, oh, these dudes are, like, real musicians. They're not just rock dudes. Like, they can really do a whole bunch of different genres and just lyrically for me since it's hard because some of them are such nonsense i try to try to figure out what it's about and to me it seems like an upbeat breakup song where maybe Mm -hmm. despite how much the other person wants nothing to do with you like you're still really happy to see
0: them that's what i took from this you're over it i got that sense as Mm -hmm. well yeah i found out that uh this is dave's favorite track on the album that's crazy to me. Um, and that no one else from the band wanted to put it on it.
1: Which probably <laughs> made him like it more. Yeah, totally. it's yeah.
0: yeah, now I feel like maybe he just said it's his favorite to spite them or whatever. For sure. Um, one thing that stood out to me when I first listened to it this sounds like Paul McCartney to me. Mm. It sounds oh. a lot like Paul McCartney to me. Uh, there's a lot of his like guitar or bass sensibility, I think, is in this song and okay. just like. That it's kind of weird. It's like weirdly Americana esque, yeah, not, mm. um, and just something about that immediately. I was just like, Paul, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, that stood out to me. Nice.
1: Apparently, yeah, you, you mentioned it before that no one else really liked the track except for him, but he really wanted to include it. And the way he got away with it was he told, I believe he told the label executives and I think his band that the intention was to riff on. Um, queen's crazy little thing called love ah,
0: and i think that's what got I them do. on board with it because they
1: made that they put two and two together and they were like okay it does sound a little bit like that it does okay we'll throw it on the record yeah i
0: hear that now oh that's yeah. weird totally hear that cool well huh. i love queen <laughs> yeah
1: who <I hope laughs> doesn't
0: and paul and, yeah.
1: <laughs> and paul and queen yeah queen <laughs> featuring paul mccartney has that ever <laughs> happened before
0: Right. I don't know No, but it should Someone should do that Internet, oh, yeah. do yeah, it Yeah,
1: internet, get on it <laughs>
0: It's not gonna be neat Yeah um, <laughs> Alright, track nine Enough space This
2: opening baseline is sick It's just so good <clears throat> And in the documentary He mentions that he really wanted He needed an opener for the set And when they would tour in the US Everyone would mosh uh, But when they toured in Europe You don't mosh, you jump you yep. Jump up and down, and it's so called he pogoing. Oh, pogoing. I did really? not yeah. know that. I love it. And so, he wanted a song that would make people do that as soon as they came out. And so, he wrote this, and it is so effective. It's the first oh, yeah. thing you want to do when you hear it. I have no idea what the lyrics are about, but I did learn from songfacts.com that apparently it's about uh, his favorite movie, Arizona Dream. I've never even heard of that movie. I don't know this. It's movie. a
1: surreal film. I think it's kinda oh. like Lynchian.
2: Okay. Okay. A little bit. So it's a it's a weird one.
1: Mm-hmm. Very much so. I haven't seen it. But
0: yeah, if, no, if Grohl likes it, it, you know I know, yeah. Maybe maybe it's worth a shot. I don't know. That's really funny that he set out for that effect because my first takeaway was like this reminds me of Screamo concerts. Like just the the energy and the pacing of yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't make that connection that that was why. Right. But that is why. he's it's just like that, right? Intentional vibes to get the crowd off their feet kind of thing. Yeah. It's very interesting.
1: It's funny. Um, when I think of what Kurt Cobain added to the musical lexicon, it was his ability to scream on key. Mm. And that's mm. what Grohl does here. Mm. Like that, that line that leads into the chorus. I don't know what note that is, but it is a note. Like, he's screaming and (laughs) also singing at the same time.
0: It's Mm -hmm. it's a skill. It's screamo. It is screamo. But then screamo,
1: I feel like some screamo is rather atonal, you know? It can be. It can be, you know? So this, to me, did not read as screamo. It just read to me as just him screaming over punk music, essentially. I don't know if there's a difference there.
0: But no, there definitely is, I hear me. you. There
2: is, and I think also what Gabby has said about his like pop sensibility, like I wanna scream, but I also want people to like it. So I'm gonna yeah. scream these notes. And sing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be sing scream. Uh yeah.
1: perfect. That should be its own genre. Yeah,
2: yeah sing, sing scream. scream.
1: <laughs> um I remember I had this song on rock band and I would play the drums oh. and that opening drum riff is so complicated oh. <laughs> but it's so kick-ass like that's where i realized how in-depth some of his drum parts would get so i remember yeah. being that and scratching my head like how, how are you how do you do this
2: so did you like, play it on easy no i played you... it on expert oh wow that's oh, shit that's my brother and i
1: we had tough. the Wii version of rock band 2 and we had the best band in the world nationally
2: <laughs> <laughs> what what were you called
1: uh uh we were called greenland police that's right that was our name <laughs> Oh man, nice. that brings me back. <laughs> that's good. That actually, that whole record, "Color in the Shape," was on Rock Band as DLC. That's I think that's where I heard it in full for the first time. Oh wow! Yeah, I
0: never played Rock Band. I was a Guitar Hero girl. Mm. Yeah, I it's was incredible how much music
1: too. we were in, We were we were introduced to so much music, so much of that rock lexicon. So many of us of that age group were introduced to via Guitar Hero and Rock Band. Yeah, the influence yeah. cannot be understated.
0: No, for sure. There's songs still, and now I can't think of any from Guitar Hero. But there's songs that will come on the radio, or I'll hear them wherever in the car, and I'm like, "Oh, this is from Guitar Hero." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I used I, to. Uh, I used to babysit
2: for a couple kids, and they had it. They were little. They were like four years old, and uh, the rage. I can't think of the name of the song, but the one where he sang the name yeah where he's saying how's was Guitar Hero yeah pocket full of shells I had yeah. this four year old pacing the basement pocket full of shells I was like well, I'm gonna get in so much trouble like he's thinking shells from the beach and I'm like yeah I was oh, about no. to say <laughs> I was like your mom's gonna be like what the hell's
0: happening here but he loved it so oh, hey I hope they're a musician now who knows maybe we'll see yeah <laughs> Time catch will up tell. with them catch up with them <laughs> 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 alright right, ten february stars we're so close all right my first note is this song is so fucking beautiful it's it gets
2: incrementally better the longer you listen to it and there is something that happens to me physically like in my chest at the last third of the song when the whole band kicks in Like, I was listening to it yesterday, and I started to, like, fold over. Like, there's just something so emotive and dramatic. I actually wrote that part of the song. It does slow down in tempo, and it makes me feel like I'm in slow motion. Like, I can't Mm. even explain what's happening. And there's a note that he hits when he says the line, floating in the dark. And have you ever seen those videos of babies who, like, cry when they listen to music? Like, there's just something in the notes? That's literally how I feel. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if it's, like, a psychological thing, but it's something about those particular notes in that order. And I cannot remember the last time I had that kind of reaction to a song before and then to like make it worse according to foo archive which is a thing um he's quoted as saying it's just a song about hanging on by the tips of your fingers and hoping you don't slip and fall you okay kate oh my god i'm not (laughs) i
0: had
2: yesterday i had to take a break and i like had to talk to james about it i was like i'm having some really big feelings right now like Mm. i i can't even it's just beautiful it's just beautiful
0: it is a beautiful song. I like this one a lot. So, because this is really my first Foo experience mm-hmm. listening to really anything aside from singles by them, when I'm listening to this, I relate it to a lot of bands that I know now, like New Radicals, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I hear mm-hmm. that. And I don't know if you guys know Pine Grove. They're yeah. from mm-hmm. New Jersey. Yep. This reminds me of Aphasia by Pine Grove and just in okay. general, the way they structure, the way they like it's slow and then it builds up to like this beautiful full band thing yeah and i just like i love uh aphasia by pine grove i can listen to that song on repeat and cry because it, it moves me and i it's just the instrumentation yeah and the way it builds up and i just like the breadth of artists that this band has influenced mm-hmm. without really acknowledging, there's no acknowledgement of stuff like that in any way, right? Like, right. when someone writes a song, even if they love, like, Taylor Swift and whoever, and those definitely influence them, you don't really talk about that, really? Sure, sure. And, well, like, Pine Grove is a relatively young band. Yeah. Like, how many more? And, like, mm. what am I missing is, like, what I think when I make these connections. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, it, I didn't have as a moving experience as you, Kate. <sighs> I, think I think you I didn't... left my body. I was like, <laughs> what
1: is a happening? full disassociation.
0: Oh, my God. It was so <laughs> I enjoyed it, but not that much.
2: <laughs> <laughs> fair. That's fair. <laughs> what do you think, uh-huh. Rob?
1: So, I hate teenagers. Let me just start by saying that. I did not have a happy adolescence you know being gay does that to you okay and so i sometimes forget what it feels like now that i'm 30 i forget i forget what it feels like to have been a teenager cuz i think i've blocked that all out of my memory sure mm. all i have to do is put this song on and mm. i am re- and then it just brings back like all the media nowadays that gets written from the perspective of like teenagers that i can't relate to anymore because i'm not mm. that age just being able to feel all those things all at the same time. Yeah. You know, the, the just sheer emotiveness, the drama. Like, all of that comes back to me when I hear this song. Yes. Like, I remember, like, hot summer nights in Massachusetts, like, having this on my MP3 Walkman, you know, and listening to this song and just being like, oh, God, just crushing. Yeah. yeah. I, I, this, is a, this is a fantastic, fantastic moment for this band.
2: It really is.
1: Like, I don't think, I really don't think they've equaled the emotiveness since, perhaps, you know? Like, they've certainly equaled the drama. Like, they have yeah. a lot of songs that reach those heights, like The Pretender and Aurora, I think, hits there. Um, but this song, in particular, it's, it's, it's they just reach this passionate peak. I think that's the one thing that this record has that makes it so popular, is that it's just infused with such passion. Ugh. You know? It's everything. It's the, the loud, soft dynamics. It's the fact that Grohl is trying really hard to come up with good lyrics. Mm. The way it's produced, the way the band is sort of working in lockstep, the pop sensibilities of all this. There's just such raw passion, and this is sort of the zenith of that. Mm. It's not the climax, but this is about as passionate as this record, and this band, in my opinion, gets is this song right here.
2: Well, I hope that I mean, we're, we're on our listening journey. So I hope this isn't the most but you could be right because I don't know how you write another song like this to this caliber. Like yeah. I just don't. Well, you can. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and,
1: and we're about to get into it.
0: <laughs> also, like, just after going through this song and how it makes both of you guys feel an interesting place in the track listing because the following songs are just not in this world at all. So it's right. just an interesting point like maybe like the last place he could have thought to put it mm. and intentionally not more prominent. Right. I think,
1: I think there's actually an important reason why this song is where it is. And I think it's because it cracks you open. Mm. Like you've listened to all of these hard rocking tracks, headbangers. You've gotten, you've gotten all of that out of it. And then you've got this extreme extraordinarily slow tempoed song that then just bursts wide open. It does three repetitions of that, that, not a chorus but like it just it breaks you down emotionally it makes you feel that Mm. so that when we get set up into the next song it makes it feel that much more effective
0: Mm. yeah
1: like imagine that's a great point yeah imagine the next song coming coming anywhere else in the album and i don't think it would have been as effective i think it would have stood out as a single but in the way the album flows i think that song is so much more effective because of the fact that february stars comes before it
0: yeah yeah I, yeah you know I, he might I be right totally hear you mm. well speaking of it track 11
2: <laughs> everlong second single august 18th 97 and louise post of veruca salt is credited with backing vocals really yes yes interesting so my notes are everybody loves this song this is a perfectly written song i think the lyrics the melody the tempo the riffs I noticed that on Spotify, it has over 606 million streams. Wow. And how long has Spotify been around? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) that's insane. The line that always stands out to me is, if anything could ever feel this real forever, if anything could ever be this good again, because everyone has had a moment where they're like, oh my God, like, this might be it. You know what I mean? Mm. I just can't say enough good things about it. For some reason, I still think I like February Stars more. But Everlong is just so good. And some info. So from Song Facts, in a Mojo Magazine interview, he said that he penned this song during one of the lowest points of his life, over Christmas in 1996. Um, He was sleeping on a friend's floor. He had just gotten divorced. And he was basically homeless. On top of that, he did not have access to his bank account. His drummer and guitarist were on the verge of quitting. And he wrote the song in 45 minutes. Wow, and being real sad will do that shit to you. Yeah,
1: man. Forty-five minutes to make six hundred million plays on Spotify. Six? Oh
2: my That's god! That's crazy. Isn't it crazy? He wrote the song about Veruca Salt frontwoman Louise Post, whom he dated after separating from his wife. Um, he says that it's about being connected to someone, not only that you love them f- physically and spiritually, but when you sing along with them, you harmonize perfectly. But there's a but. My guitarist Sean sent me something today about this song. And I was like, ooh, dude, Uh, Louise made a YouTube video. And this is according to 98 KUPD, Arizona's real rock. So that's the source. Legit. Legit. She's quoted as saying... I sang these backups over the phone at 2 a.m. after being woken up from a deep sleep in Chicago by Dave, who was tracking vocals for Everlong in L.A. He wanted me to sing the doo-doos, like in the background, I guess. Yeah. While I was at it, I wrote a harmony for the chorus and sang that, too. The whispered section of the song was originally the dream I was having when the phone rang. It was a dream about us. He later removed it and replaced it with his own whispers, which was a love letter to me.
1: Devious. Whoa! Devious. I was like, "What?"
2: But then she goes on. Okay, she says that the relation—well, they're—they're not quoting her directly. Uh, the relationship did not end well. In 1997, while she was on stage in Australia, she claimed that Dave had cheated on her with Winona Ryder.
1: What? Listen. The tea.
2: What?
0: Oh my Whoa. god! But they're friends now. So happy ending. Sure. I mean. Winona. I would I would too. I mean Winona. In it the nineties. In the nineties? Winona in the nineties? Are you fucking kidding me? Like yeah. come on.
1: Can't pass that up. No. They, they no should have changed the title of this record to kinda short. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh. So I found out a fun fact as well. Oh god, so many. Okay, well this was Dave Letterman's favorite song. Uh Uh-huh. So much so that the Foos rescheduled their tour so that they could play his first show back after he had heart surgery. Wow. And it was the very last song that that played on the last Letterman show before he retired. Oh wow. Mm. Letterman's cooler than I thought. I really like Dave Letterman. I think he's a very funny, corny old man. He reminds me of my best friend's dad, of Caroline's dad, who passed away in December. There's just something about him that reminds me of him. Interesting. I, really, I love him as, an, as a cute old man. Yeah. And Genius is also telling me, we were just talking about it, this was featured on Guitar Hero, World Tour, and Rock Band 2.
2: Mm-hmm. I've had to be. Are
0: you kidding uh, me? Had
1: they was, made the game was, for this song. This was how the game was promoted, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. They oh. used this yeah. song as the promotional song because it is so beloved you know
2: everyone loves it everyone
1: this is the best song that the foo fighters have ever written and that's not even a controversial take like i mean to me personally like you can go back to some bands like what's the best song that led zeppelin's put out and you would get a, a bunch of different responses right but i think most people will agree that at a baseline i don't think they wrote a better song than this it's like like you mentioned it's it's functionally perfect It is a functionally perfect song. Every single piece has its own purpose. The dynamics are absolutely perfect. The textures are exquisite. Mm. Like, it's emotive. It's infinitely replayable. Mm. It's such a good song.
2: And I think also it's, and this could be because it's so popular, but it's so recognizable that, like, People who have ne- who would say I don't know who the Foo Fighters are would say Oh I know this song I love mm-hmm. this song You know what I mean mm-hmm. Like they can yeah. love the song and not even want to dif- discover who's writing it Like who's singing it They would just be like Oh this one's good So like yeah. even non music people are like It's an amazing song
1: mm-hmm. I remember I was writing a song myself Just I was funking I was screwing around with um drop uh, dadgad tuning mm-hmm. and uh, I forget I had the capo on on some fret. But I remember coming upon some chords for the song, and I was like, "This sounds a lot like Everlong." But I wonder if people will notice. <laughs> and so I live in a house with like five or six other people, uh-huh. and I went outside and I played some guitar. They're also all musicians, and I and they went and I went and played some guitar, just like that song basically what i was working on and they were like is that ever long damn it <laughs> too similar gotta, this is yeah. either the
2: greatest song I, i've ever written or i can never play it i again. can't
1: no i'd get litigated to shit
2: oh uh, wow yeah but you had a moment where you were like that's exactly. my ever long moment yeah yeah
1: so. i figured it out you know <laughs> suck it dave turns yeah, out writing music it, isn't that hard after all
2: he would love that he'd be like play that <laughs> he song <probably> man
1: <laughs> rock on yeah, yeah. <laughs> he'd come out of the clouds like mufasa yeah <laughs> he'd give me the thumbs up
0: <laughs> he totally would <laughs> i love if that would uh, be a thing if he would come out of the clouds oh i wish a musician that he's like you're doing a great job yeah <laughs>
2: if he could <laughs> he would
0: Oh, absolutely. All right, number 12, walking
2: after you. So my favorite lyric is, if you'd accept surrender, I'll give up some more. I just think that's Mm -hmm. such a cool line. It feels like lyrically, this person will literally do anything for the other person, whether it's to get back with them or to just be with them, whatever it is. It's just, there's a desperation in it that's just like really pretty. And lyrically, it feels stronger to me than some of the other songs. I did write that I feel like, This track, February Stars, Doll, and See You are all coming from a very similar Sonic place, which is not a bad thing. But as we've discussed, he's kind of doing this like hard rock soft song thing. So I feel like if we were to split this album into two albums, like this would be one of them. You know, Mm. it'd be like the pretty guys and the rock guys. It does clock in at around five minutes, but it does not
0: feel super long. All. I noted that too. It did yeah. not feel long, and I was surprised when it was over how long it was. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, I found out an interesting fact. Oh. This song is on the 1998 X Files movie soundtrack, but it's an alternate version that oh. I can't find.
1: Interesting. Weird.
0: By I them? don't know what it sounds like. It's by them. It's just a different like recording version of it so i don't know huh. now knowing like the recording drama uh. i don't know if maybe the alternate version was with the old drummer and like, uh. what happened maybe then i don't really know but it's possible um, oh, you said it was what x-files movie Is that the x-files said? movie from 1998
2: interesting james is on a uh, an x-files bender i will not watch it with him so i'm gonna ask how far he is and i'll be like <laughs> when you when you get to the movie
0: let me know yeah
2: <laughs> let me know yeah it, it yeah.
0: apparently is shorter than the album version well
2: five minutes yeah if it's gonna be in a movie they were probably like make this but make it shorter <laughs> yes you know and they probably paid him
0: some money for it and he was like okay sure <laughs> what do you think rob <laughs> i remember really
1: liking this song when i grew up with it mm-hmm. and the thing is though is that looking back to it i'm just so not into that narrative that I think was so popular in the late 90s, where a lot of dudes would write music that was like, oh, I'm never going to give you up. Even if you mm. break up with me, I'm still going to follow after you. It's like, dude, just leave her alone. Yeah, now you know? it doesn't
2: go so well now. Uh-huh. <laughs> then it was like romantic. And now it's like, this seems predatory. Yeah, a little bit. exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. A little, it's just not chic. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah.
1: So that being said, I mean, gorgeous track. The the the, the soft ride hits are always so nice. Mm. You know, I, I, I really... This might be one of my least favorites on the track, just because of the subject matter. But I, I do really like what they did with the track, especially coming after Everlong. Like this mm. is the denouement for sure. Yeah,
2: you yeah. Know?
1: It's a, it's a it's a after the huge emotional peaks of February Stars and Everlong. This is a really smart choice to play right afterwards. Like it feels yeah. resolatory. That's mm. not a word. It feels like a resolution.
2: I think is you it made a word, word Rob? We a word. just talked yeah, about it. Yeah, we can make our own Paranoia. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Paramania.
2: Yeah. Yeah. resolatory. I feel like resolatory is a word. I,
1: I think hope so. Too. Now it is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up while I'm sweating.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm a writer. I swear. Resolatory. <laughs> yeah, having the effective result and yeah. so, Yay! Yay! I'm yeah, not Ron. stupid.
0: <laughs> yay. All right, 13, New Way Home. Another one that is produced by Gail and written only by Dave. Mm. I think this song is such a great, I
2: wrote it, what a great way to end this magnificent journey. Mm. It's the perfect, well, wait, hold on. As I say that, are we considering this the last song? Because then I had like conflicting things that uh, the color and the shape, but that came later.
0: I have The Color and the Shape as the closing song and what I saw, but uh, Genius says there's another track after The Color and the Shape that I did not include.
1: So The Color and the Shape was a bonus track. That okay. was one of several bonus tracks that were released in the deluxe edition of The Color and the Shape, which was released in the 2000s, I yes. got it. But the original ending for the record was New Way Home. Like, that was okay. the intended ending. So The Color okay. and the Shape... It's funny how those paradigms change with streaming services because, you know, listening to this record the first time you see that last song and it's like, oh, that's the end of the record. Yeah. But that was definitely like a bonus song that they just decided, I think, to include because it was cool. Right. You know? But the record is in- intended to end with this song.
2: Okay. So then my note makes sense because then yeah. I was like, oh no, what are we doing? So anyway, in the original track listing, just a fantastic way to end it. The song, similar to another note I had for a different one, um, it's still friendly but it's rock. It's melodic, but it's punchy. Like everyone's on board with this. I feel like I'm at the end of a really good road trip when I listen to this song. Like I'm like,
0: oh, okay, cool. Like we just had the greatest time. I noted that it felt like it closing credits of, like, a 90s, like, Mo- yeah, friend
2: movie. Yeah, a friend movie, yes, totally. <laughs> um, and then my note, I, I pointed out a lyric in "Doll." In "Doll," the first track, it says, uh, In all the times we've shared, I've never felt this scared. And in this song, he's saying, I'm not scared. So it's mm. like a bookend to the whole album lyrically, where he's kind of come through all this trauma, and he's existing through all this stuff, and he's not scared anymore. Like, we're at the end, I've written all the songs, i'm good now
0: i love that so much i did not make that connection isn't it I great love when people do that i love it when yeah. they connect it and make it they close the circle it's so intentional and i i just really like i like that kind of art
1: i can't tell you how many times i've listened to that record and not made that connection yeah. that's crazy now thinking about it
0: i was like he's great. not scared anymore guys
2: i was so excited <laughs> He's not afraid anymore. <laughs>
0: oh, <yeah. laughs> okay, oh, we'll
1: call it Culkin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. This is a good song. It, this is a. I love my favorite thing about this song is the part before the build up at the end. I, mm-hmm. th- I love that the series of chords. Um, it's just so upbeat positive i think yeah. it's the vibe you get from it like it's just so melodically it's complex but it also just it's so simple like yeah. it's so easy and that, that that i think is the defining quality of, of dave Grohl's best work is mm-hmm. the fact that he's able to 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 have pop sensibilities while also writing stuff that wouldn't be the first thing that would come to mind
2: right
0: yeah yeah right he's
1: really really good at that when he's on
0: he's just the best. Mm-hmm. I just love him. Well, we're wrapping <laughs> here, right? We're not going to do the bonus. I mean, I I, have, can. I I have I have some it. notes on it.
1: Yeah. I think it's I think it would still be interesting to talk about for sure. Sure,
0: yeah. And I like that it the bonus is the title track, which is such a funny move to make. Uh so 14 bonus track, The Color and the Shape. What's weird is I
2: have that Dave did not play drums on this at all. Who did? This is Goldsmith. This is William. So this is his loud moment.
1: This and yet is they didn't. Include, they, they didn't include it on the record.
0: It's almost insult <laughs> it's so to injury, shady. isn't it?
1: I was yeah. like,
2: oh I wonder shit! Now,
0: if <laughs> for wanting to make a but bo- like wanting to release a bonus, like what was the reason in the two thousands, like the anniversary or something? Uh, it was the tenth anniversary. Yeah. Okay. So it kind of like even though at the time he was very no, I want to play drums on this. Like he could do it better. Ten years later, when it comes down to release that anniversary edition with one bonus track that he's just like yeah do that one we didn't put on it
2: i i can see it
0: interesting i can see it
2: both ways i can see him like yeah yeah release that song i can also see like it's been 10 years yeah maybe this is like an olive branch thing like hey dude i fucked up we're gonna throw some bonus songs on here and like you're on this song but i don't know i'm sure Goldsmith had some feelings about it. I'm like, mm.
1: those decisions always read to me more like marketing decisions. Like, yeah. we have this stuff in the vault that would look that would in you know inspire people yeah. to buy the record again. Yeah, you know, right. 10 months later, than it is That's, like yeah. anything purposeful. Probably, Probably. I feel yeah. like this. This was recorded in Bear Creek. Like, this was a Goldsmith track, and I think perhaps the reason why Dave didn't bother re-recording drums for it is because he may have already decided that it wasn't going to be on the record. Because I think. Looking back on it, if we're talking about his intention to move away from his time with Nirvana yeah. and everything, this song is so Nirvana. It's crazy. That guitar riff is so Cobain-inspired. You know, like it, it just makes sense, I think, that he just listened back to it and he was like, maybe this isn't the best decision for, for a band that's trying to get away from that. Yeah. Me, trying to get away with that.
0: A thousand percent. I had the same note. I was yep. like, "This sounds like a Nirvana song." My mm. note was, "This should have been on album one." This is a yeah. al- this is an album one song. It does not
2: fit this one. It fits right in with that other one
1: because it's so weird. It doesn't really seem to have a point other than just being a fun little yeah you know, exercise into those those dynamics. Like just, just yeah, just to let off some steam, right? You know. Right. Do you know where this, the title of the song comes from and the title of the record?
0: No, please tell. Do so do you? I don't I know. Do. Okay, Apparently.
1: Good. Uh, I forget what part of the entourage had is claimed to this, but they walked into an antique store and he saw a bowling pin in the antique store and he was like, I'm going to buy this. And they were like, why? And he's just like, oh, it's the color and the shape. I like it. And they thought that was a cute <laughs> running joke. And then they just went with it.
2: <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Cute. Yeah. Because it like
0: seems that. very deep the color it's and the shape
2: <laughs> it but never what really is it?
0: Is. i believe they got deep when they added a u and made it canadian Col- yes. Colour. Yeah. Yeah.
1: color yeah <laughs> yeah yeah
2: that's so I, funny I that. what a cute yeah. story no i that's so funny i didn't come across that in any of the research that that would make sense maybe note to self for the future research why the albums are called what they're called
1: <laughs> you know sometimes it literally means nothing
0: sometimes you know? That's yeah, a good one. and sometimes we get a cute story, yeah, um, well, all right, well, guys, we did it. We're at the end, yeah, so Rob, we do a thing when we close where we ask what everyone's least uh favorite favorite, favorite and underdog song is, so I'm gonna ask you this, what is your favorite song on this album?
1: this is I can't say a tie. I have to choose one, right? You Cause... have to choose one. Yeah, okay. sorry. You so... get an
0: underdog. You get you get a favorite okay. and an underdog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... so
1: normally, it would be a tie between Hey Johnny Park and Everlong. I think I gotta have to be basic and go with Everlong here.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, if we're okay. going
1: on just, like, scorecard, this is 100%. At least in my opinion, because music is subjective, this is the best song that Foo Fighters have ever. And, and for me personally, like, I can never get tired of listening to that song. It's so good. 100%. Yeah, Everlong it's is my so favorite off the track. And then least favorite, I would have to give it to probably Walking After You, Okay, I think. Not just because I don't think it's aged well, but because it just comes after the high highs of Everlong that I don't, I mm. think it's just, it's like following up a really good stand-up comedian. It's
2: right. It's like what you got, you know? <laughs> it's, it's a tough spot. It's a yeah. tough spot. Yeah. <laughs> and then my
1: underdog, I would say probably My Poor Brain. I think it's an under-looked at. Title in the Foo Fighters discography, and maybe it's too energetic for them to play it on tours. And well, if they do any more tours, but I think it's just, it's such a, I think that record is, that song is really great for the dynamics and how, how it's designed to be that, like, the, the, the chords of it are so cool. Yeah. And that song always, always gets me. Like, whenever I'm listening to that in public, Like, it'll come on, and I'll I'll be tempted to just bang my head wherever I am.
2: (laughs) Just have a moment. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Kate, what about you? (laughs) All right, so obviously, best song is February Stars, because I just (laughs) transcended. Um, It's just, I just have no more words for that. Um, Worst song, which is not, I hate calling it that, Wind Up, just because Mm. it's, it's just to me background stuff still good still good but it didn't stand out in any kind of way it's what the kids would call mid mid yeah Yeah. mid mid. everything is mid yeah and my underdog is the same my poor brain i i don't think i had ever really listened to it until we did this and i i just found myself going back to it i was just so pleasantly surprised so that's my underdog what about you gab
0: my favorite i'm gonna be the stereotype too it's everlong obviously yeah um i don't think there's much discussion to that it's just a really perfectly written song and like wonderfully constructed as we have discussed Mm. my underdog is hey johnny park
1: Mm. great choice i
0: didn't expect like that early into the album of songs i'm not familiar with to immediately be like i love this like right away my least is also wind up because it doesn't change it's flat the whole way even though it's at a 10 it's bleh and I don't like songs with no momentum. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah I feel that.
0: So we got some overlap across the board.
1: Yeah. Nice. We kind Look of agree. Us. Excellent.
0: Look at us. <laughs> well Rob thank you so much for coming absolute. on the show. Thank yeah. you for
1: having me. I've had an absolute blast.
2: Oh, that's, uh, I'm so glad this worked out. Um, Do you are you currently do you have anything to plug?
1: Um well uh i just do you know the drag queen Trix, trixie mattel
0: oh my god i yeah. fucking love trixie
1: <laughs> <Mattel>. <laughs> i just interviewed her this morning
0: shut so. the fuck up <laughs> yeah. is she amazing
1: yeah it was great we got to, she's putting out a couple records on the 24th and so the, there's a piece that's going to come out about that around that time so
0: i'm gonna oh, stay die. tuned for
1: that that's probably going to come out on pop matters um
0: yeah send it to us we'll post it absolutely yeah oh and i'm
1: god. also currently also working on music as well um nice. it's going to be under the name armor uh with a u Oh, nice, Canadian. Yeah. Um, that'll it'll be finished in late June. We'll see what happens, but that'll be in the works. And otherwise, yeah Follow the tape deck. Um, follow left of the dial. Follow pop matters. Just Google me. You know,
2: I'll be beautiful. Beautiful. my work will be
0: there. It's good love stuff, it. people. So definitely check it out. Oh, thank yes. you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Rob. We really appreciate it. Um, and maybe we'll do this again. I would love next to would have me on. We'll figure out want. a new band. Yeah. Yeah, 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 let's do
1: it. Totally into it. <laughs>
0: Maybe we'll awesome. do Trixie Mattel. We'll see. Oh my oh god. Oh my god,
1: yeah.
0: <gasps> I would die. <laughs> we'll see how
1: many records she puts out. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. We gotta wait a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks to the band Above the Moon for writing and recording our theme song. You can find them on Instagram at Above the Moon Music or on their website, AboveTheMoonMusic.com. If you enjoyed listening, give us a follow or subscribe on your favorite platform. And if you really enjoyed listening, leave us a like, rate us, or review us so more people can find us. You can keep up with news about new episodes on Instagram at MinornotesPodcast or email us, minornotespodcast at gmail.com. Minor Notes is a finally cool production. Next week, we'll be discussing the Foo Fighters' third album, There Is Nothing Left To
0: Lose, with longtime Foo fan, guitarist, and audio engineer for his own Bottle Hill Studios, Sean Murphy. One,
1: two, three. Finally cool!